I was in the city of London and one road passed and I just stopped and thought, wow, I like that. It's a bit like seeing a Ferrari for the first time, perhaps. I remember it well. It was fantastic. Nice, shiny, silver, polished space frame. And I'd not seen anything like it, really. And then, like many people, I was captivated. And I suppose I lusted after one. Stunning. It looked completely alien with the space frame and the, the cross-tubing and things. Beautiful thing. Um, but more functional than beautiful, in a sense. It took me a while to get used to it. It's quite obviously a superior machine. It, it was very different. I like things that look functional and look pretty as well. Um, I'm quite interested in architecture and I like drawing buildings and I, I like going around on a bike that has a nice structure and is a nice colour and looks as though it's designed for the purpose. You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston. Welcome to The Bike Show. And this is the second half of the story of Alex Moulton and the reinvention of the bicycle. This week we're picking up from where we left off at the end of last week's show with the birth of Alex Moulton's futuristic space frame bicycle design unveiled for the first time in With a lattice of thin tubes echoing the geodesic designs of Buckminster Fuller, the space frame obviously looked like no other bicycle. But how does it ride? It's really enjoyable. I mean, when I ride it, I, I often smile. <laughs> it sounds silly, but it's really enjoyable to ride. You know, some people might say having full suspension is like on a magic carpet. It's not like being on a magic carpet. You can feel everything in the road, but everything is... You, do you hear the sounds more than you feel them? Oh, well, it's mainly the smoothness of the, uh, the ride due to its excellent suspension, which is specially designed for ro- road use and uh, really does take uh, the, the roughness out. And that was true for the uh, AM7, the, the early um, space frames, and even more so, so with uh, Alex Moulton's new series, which came out about just before about 1999, I think, and uh, has a completely new type of suspension system, which uh, is... Virtually friction-free and has uh, most amazing ride. Quite different, quite different. The new series from from the other, even the even the other space frames, which are pretty good too. From an engineering standpoint, you're not going to find anything else with such a stiff frame that can have such a compliant ride. You can only do that by adding suspension front and rear to the bicycle. And Dr. Moulton himself, I think, has done it the best way. I mean, we all know that you can ride a mountain bike with suspension both ends but you, this chalk and cheese. The, the Moulton itself is superlative. Beautiful bicycle. As well as offering a comfortable ride, suspension makes the bicycle more efficient. Patrick Ducey, who writes a blog called Moulton Buzz, explains. When you go over a bump, you know, the some of the force of the bump is, is restricting your progress on, on, a, on, a, on an unsuspended bike. Um, whereas when you go over a bump um, at the... On a suspended bike, the, the wheel just moves up gently out of the way. The bikes proved to be amazingly adaptable to different kinds of riding, as Mog, 
a one-time London bike messenger and now a mechanic at Brixton Cycles, recalls. When I had one of the first APBs, which really was an all-purpose bike, I could go out and ride out with friends on mountain bike rides on one day with a change of tyres, go out with the same people on their road bikes on the same bike and keep up with them quite happily on both times and use it to carry huge amounts of shopping home. And Load carrying has always been an advantage of Moulton's small wheel, low centre of gravity design. This has made it a hit with long distance cycle tourists and those who just want to move things around town. I can vouch for this myself, having used an old Moulton Deluxe to carry three cats a couple of miles across South London to the vet. Dr Moulton appeared to approve of my feline adventure. That's a very nice thing. I'm a great cat. My uh, cat Toby is very much the centre of our household. And so I, was, I introduced the idea to him, have a ride on a Moulton bicycle. He might do it, but I can imagine him springing out pretty quickly. He's a very lively cat. Although it looks very different from the classical F-frame of the 1960s, the space frame is really just an evolution of the same idea. Instead of using a single fat horizontal tube, the space frame reduces weight and increases stiffness by using much smaller tubes triangulated in space, rather like the vehicles that are used to explore the surface of the Moon and Mars. The same principle is at work in many modern buildings. The roof at Stansted Airport outside London, the Bank of China Tower in Hong Kong, the Pyramid in the Louvre in Paris, and the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. Paul Villiers is one of a new generation of British frame builders, skilled in the old crafts of hand-cut and hand-braised steel frames. He explains the difference between a traditional diamond-shaped bicycle frame and the molten space frame. It's a very intricate design with lots and lots of joints. Now, the traditional bike, diamond frame, there's usually 11 tubes in a diamond frame bike. Um, I've never bothered to sit down and count the amount of tubes on a new series. Uh, I'd need more than... You'd need a few hands when you're a calculator. But looking at it, I would think there must be close on 100 joints on the bike. And they're all small tubes. They're all hand fish mouth or mitered. And they're all hand finished as well and polished afterwards. So there's a heck of a lot of work goes in them. If you put a lot of time and effort into a traditional bike, make sure the finishing is good. You've got a good two days solid in building a traditional bike frame and fork. Some of the old masters are faster than me. They could possibly, they do a frame a day or two frames a day in the old days. But I'd say two days. So one man, it would take almost a week or more to build one of these new series. There's a very intricate and a beautiful piece of work. The enormous skill involved in building a space frame requires a special kind of frame builder. At the small Moulton factory in Bradford-upon-Avon, Alex Moulton introduced me to Tim Bigwood. Timmy, how long have you been here? 47 years. He doesn't look it, does he? Did he? He arrived quite young, but uh, he doesn't look as if he's been here 47 years. No, come quickly. Yes. I always say in development, he's, um, my right hand is highly creative and, and, and helpful, but it uh, executes the first things, don't you? Yes. The first prototype. Look at those lovely colours going on there. What colour do you think that is? I'm not very good on colours. Uh, steely grey. Steely grey, right. The original F-frame Moultons were squarely aimed at the mass market and sold in huge quantities, accounting for as much as 20% of the UK bicycle market in their heyday in the 1960s. But as we found out last week, the story ended badly, with Raleigh buying the patents and taking the machine out of production in the early 1970s. Alex Moulton was clearly stung by this experience. 
So with the space frame, he took the decision to focus exclusively on performance, putting to one side considerations of styling, cosmetic appearance, fashion and price. Tony Hadland is the author of two histories of Moulton bicycles. And now we have a situation where Alex Moulton is actually making more bicycles in the UK than Rally because Rally don't make any bicycles whatsoever in the UK. Uh, now it's a tiny number, but he is in fact employing British craftsmen. And I think there is certainly that thing about the uh, artisan quality, uh, which goes with the story. It's very parallel in some respects with the, uh, uh, the kind of cult of some of the uh, single malt whiskies, for example. Uh, and it's interesting that the Japanese um, treat the, the, the molten uh, cult in very much the same sort of way that they do uh, their interest in Scotch whiskies. That I think there is this fact that they can identify it with um, a, a small number of people who are actually discernible, rather than a faceless factory in um, in China, which might be you know two and a half miles long and very effectively turning out automated stuff. Uh, the fact that you've got people who are putting their sort of soul, if you like, into the product, both in the design and in the manufacture, that does sort of um, uh, capture the imagination of people, I think, and they're prepared to pay a premium for that. As well as being appreciated like a single malt whiskey, the Molten attracts cyclists who want something different from their bicycles. There is the fact that it works. I think that's, that's important. I think probably also it's something that appeals to personality types who like to try something a little bit different and who aren't uh, afraid to do so, because an awful lot of people don't want to look different. Uh, they get nervous about you know, whether it's clothes or fashion accessories or the cars they drive or the houses they live in, all these sort of things. Most of us tend to be a little bit conformist, I guess. And so uh, I think people who like to go a little bit against the grain uh, will tend to go towards it. I suspect you'd find more Mac users, for example, who also use Moltons, you know, that rather than use the standard sort of Windows solution, the kind of people who might go for a Mac would also perhaps more likely go for a Moulton. There's that kind of thing in the, in the mentality. People who appreciate an alternative solution um, that works well. It's quite a, a, a deep thing, and it's also something which is uh, almost a bit like Freemasonry in a sense, I guess, that uh, extends into other quarters, because there are a lot of people who ride all sorts of bikes, as I do myself, uh, but who somewhere along the line have the, the molten vice, if you like. Uh, when you scratch the surface of the technical writers on moltons and, and bicycle designers and that sort of thing, you very often find that amongst their um, favoured machines there is a molten. So one of the people who I've met at um, the uh, annual 
do at Moulton's place in Bradford-on-Avon is actually the design director of Cannondale. Now, he, he will, when he's not working for Cannondale, he will pop over uh, with his Moulton from the USA, for example. Uh, you find that uh, people, who, the, the authors of The Dancing Chain, for example, The History of Deralius, Frank Berto, uh, Rides a Moulton, um, Ron Shepard, who's now sadly passed away, uh, but the Australian contributor, he wrote a Moulton as well. Uh, you, you find that there are an awful lot of uh, people there who have an interest in them, apart from those people who only ride Moultons. I think you'll find that an awful lot of uh, Moulton devotees do ride other machines, but um, they have a, a particular fondness for, for the Moulton, particularly from the touring point of view. It's different. It's different because it looks different. But the great thing is it rides different. It's different to own. It's nice to own. You can, dare I say it, they're a bit like a Breitling or a Rolex watch to some people. They're a piece of art as well as a bicycle. Oh, they do their job. And they do it fantastically well. You can go on a two or three hour ride or longer on a mountain and you can enjoy every moment you're on the bike. And you also will sit there with a cup of tea and a cake and look at the thing leaning against the wall. And you can't make your mind up whether you want to get back on it and to ride it or sit there and keep looking at it. You know, that's the trouble with the things. And some people actually buy them and hang them on the walls and never ride them. So, but there you go. I buy them off them cheap one day, second hand. <laughs> They've only been hanging on the wall. Now do me, but I like to ride mine. Moultoniers also seem to like the fact that the personality of Alex Moulton and his very distinctive approach to engineering is stamped indelibly on every bike. George Kalouris owns several Moultons, including a specially customised one-off Moulton tandem. I like the fact that you can have direct personal contact with the factory and even the person who designed it. In a funny way, although he has a a very uh, definite attitude and doesn't really want you to interfere, which is reasonable. Um, he, is, he is quite open in terms of, uh, you can see how he's gone about it, uh, how the bikes are being made. You might say it, it, it helps you to tolerate the high price because you can see the amount of craft that's going into building the Moultons and, and the fact that you, you can actually go through the whole process, see what was, how it was designed and how it's being built is, is quite impressive, I think. While the Moulton clearly does have a worldwide following, in terms of new sales, the company is firmly oriented towards its markets in the Far East, as Sean Moulton, Alex Moulton's nephew and director of the company, explains. Our major market is Japan and that's sort of built up over the last 20 years, I suppose. And now Korea's just gone quite big. Taiwan is surprisingly a big market for us, considering it's sort of it's significantly smaller than Japan as a place, but cycling seems to have taken off there. Um, Singapore is just coming on board, Thailand, and also we're looking at mainland China, but sort of keeping that arm's length at the moment. I asked him how he accounts for the success of Moulton's in the Far East. When we supply a frame to the Far East, they'll build it with Campagnano components. So they want the, be the best British frame and the best European components they can get. What Alex has done for so long is, is innovated and innovated his design through and through and through to make it lighter and lighter, stiffer, faster, more comfortable, etc. And I think they're getting a picture of that history and they're buying into that um, heritage and quality and depth of knowledge. And so our bicycle over there has become, if you like, an oppo of a Swiss watch. For Alex Moulton, it goes even deeper. I think it can be explained by 
uh, what the Japanese introduced to me, they said it's a very interesting thing that if a creation of an artifact has been made uh, by uh, a lot of loving care, uh, probably led by one man, but uh, very much assisted by, by people who are devoted to it, it acquires a spirit. Nurturing the molten spirit is a high priority, and every year the hall the country house that has been the Moulton family seat for four generations down in Bradford-on-Avon hosts a gathering of enthusiasts. We have this Moulton weekend in early September and riders from, from, from throughout the world come here. We have a nice tent, a nice encampment, which I call the wigwams, uh, on the lawn. Then we have a, a dinner in the evening and we have the review of, of users' own bicycles. Um, we talk them down, and it is very encouraging to see these old bicycles, beautifully restored. I myself are old, but to see these things which were made when I was younger in perfect condition and giving pleasure uh, for, for, for well into the future. That gives me enormous pleasure. I asked Michael Wolfe, founder of Moulton Preservation, whether there are any particular kinds of people who are most drawn to the Moulton bicycle. Well, I think it's across the board, but we get a lot of young architectural students and people who are fascinated by design who really um, just love, love the bikes. And, and so they can really come in on an entry model and pick one up in a market or, or on eBay, sometimes for £50 or, or a little bit more, and then spend three times that restoring it, having it chromed or sprayed. Um, we don't tend to do the complete preservation and restoration here now. As you can see, it's a very small place in Chelsea, <laughs> the top of a house. So, um, we, but we do supply all the parts for it. And so it's really all sorts of people, every type of person who wants to do it from all over the country. And I supply parts right around the world, you know, the States, Zimbabwe, even. Uh, there's people everywhere. I spent a morning at the hall at Bradford-on-Avon. And from the first moment, hearing my footsteps walking down the driveway towards the big house, I felt like I was traveling back into another world. Whether it's the house itself with sunlight streaming in through the enormous windows and the rooms filled with drawings and diagrams and books piled high on tables, to the workshop where half a dozen men dressed in uniform blue three quarter length coats working very diligently and attentively on these extraordinary designs to the museum housed in a 19th century greenhouse. The whole feeling was of a, a lost era. Left alone for a few moments, it felt like a scene out of the Avengers. I was half expecting John Steed to jump out from behind a bookcase brandishing an umbrella or Emma Peel to high kick her way into the drawing room. And this sense of a bygone era and another time, I think has a lot to do with the appeal of the Moulton bicycle. I asked people who had got to know Alex Moulton through his bicycles to describe what he was like as a man. George Kalouris followed by Tony Hadland. He is outgoing in an, in an unusual sort of way in that he's, um, he, he's certainly very individualistic and single track in his approach to things. Well, perhaps single track is putting it wrong. It's, he, he knows his own mind and he, he follows it. Um, but he is outgoing in terms of discussing the usage and uh, the history and, uh, and and interacting with people at the um, at the event that he he hosts every year at his house. So I find it quite positive. Uh. He's 
very much an individualist. He's said himself that he's unemployable. He's not somebody who could fit into the modern corporate world. He's really from the sort of culture of the Victorian entrepreneurial engineer, more in the sort of um, uh, cut of Brunel, if you like, somebody who has a personality who they stamp on a design, which is very difficult in the modern world because industry and finance and means of production just aren't set up that way. But he has, uh, though he's not fabulously rich, he's had enough financial background to be able to sustain these operations. So, for example, when Raleigh suddenly pulled out of making the original bike, he was able to set up a factory in the grounds of his own house. He's very single-minded. Um, he doesn't uh, suffer fools gladly. Um, he can be charm itself. At other times, he can be quite uh, assertive, uh, quite abrasive. That's part of the, um, uh, the, the personality of somebody who is a, a thinker and a doer and actually gets things done. He's had quite a few setbacks, but he's also had an awful lot of triumphs. Uh, a very interesting person of a species that is almost extinct, I think. Ultimately, the cult is rooted in a shared appreciation of how Alex Moulton has made probably the biggest single contribution to the advancement of bicycle design in the 20th century. Great visionary thinker. I mean, when you think the bicycle hasn't really changed much since about 1890, no matter how much carbon fibre and how many gears they can put on it or you know, how many disc brakes and four inches of rear suspension, it's still basically the same bike as people were riding in 1890, apart from the Moulton. You know, you see all things every year. Somebody's like, oh, I've come up with this new idea for the bicycle, and they generally suck. Whereas this one, it, it actually works. And it was only a few years ago that MIT did a rolling resistance tests with all their fancy stuff and worked out that the most efficient size wheel is roughly around 17 inches with a high-pressure tyre. To which Mr. Moulton was like, yeah, I told you that back in 1965, but I had no way of really testing it apart from roll-down tests. Uh, you know, if the UCI let them people ride them in road racing, it would be a different, different thing. I asked Dr. Moulton to describe his own process of design and innovation. My process is very much the, the thing which has been admired by the Japanese from fundamentals. Well, that's first all of um, calculations by fundamentals and then uh, a lot of testing and measurement. And uh, certainly not by CAD. Um, uh, that's qu quite unsuitable for innovation. Um, essentially by drawing, sketching first, then proper drawing, uh, scale drawing, and then rushing to, to make, make early prototypes and then testing them. He appeared disheartened by the state of engineering design in the UK. In this country, um, we are currently uh, are not interested in, uh, uh, as we used to be, um, in engineering innovation. We're, we're simply fashion-driven and bottom-line driven. And do you think that's a problem? I personally do. I think that it's a natural thing for, for uh, mankind to make things and create things which are useful uh, and needed. And um, I believe it's, it's all still in the, in the breed, if you like, in, in the, uh, the psyche of, of, uh, of, of um, England. But I'd just like to bring it on and encourage it. And where is it happening in the world? Who are the Alex Moultons of the 21st century? I think they're about. I'm sure they're about somewhere. I don't know where. I'm sure they are. Maybe um, the West Coast of America. I don't know. I'm sure they are. Paul Villiers is impressed that even at the age of 88, Dr. Moulton is still working hard. Every day he's still in his drawing room in his office designing something. He didn't say at the recent BOA, but I believe there's another bike on the blocks at the moment that he's designing. 
I think he wants to let people know he still he still can turn turn out the goods, you know. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that is. I asked him what he was working on. I would simply to improve the theme. Uh, and no more how I'm doing it, uh, it remains to be to, to appear. But be assured, there, is, there are further evolutionary uh, steps to improve the, 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 the product uh, and to make it yet more attractive, always under the same Moulton theme that, that you've seen. So it'll always be recognisable as a Moulton bicycle. People who already ride Moultons have got plenty of ideas about what they'd like to see in the future. Chris Mann, followed by George Kouluris. They need to produce a model that addresses um, modern urban needs. And I think that means somehow making... A, a, a big feature of the Mortons is that it separates in two. And I think... But when you separate it in two, it's two large, unwieldy pieces. I think that's generally uh, agreed by everyone. I'm not saying they should make a bike like a Brompton, because if you wanted a Brompton, you'd get a Brompton. But something that just makes it easier, that so you can actually take it on a train as a folding bike, in quotes, without it actually being a folding bike, some sort of compromise. Well, the first, first idea that comes to mind is that they should manufacture a tandem. Uh, I think the reception that when people see our tandem and our own experience with it indicates that it is a sound idea, a very good idea to have a tandem and, to, and it's very, it has definite advantages in use. Um, Beyond that, I, I imagine what will happen is that the new series design, especially the suspension of the new series, will um, filter down into the other bikes and give you that Rolls-Royce sort of ride that you get with the new series in uh, some of the less expensive bikes, I think. Since the mid-1990s, a partnership with Pashley Bicycles, another classic British company, has allowed the development of a lower-priced range of molten bicycles. Over the summer, it was announced that this partnership had become a formal merger. Paul Villiers thinks it's a good thing. At Bradford and Avon, they're still a small unit. And they build everything by hand. It's going to be helpful to them, surely, to have the might of Pashley and their engineering side and their manufacturing and fabrication side on board. Um, but other than that, I don't see there being too many changes. And that's good because the, the TSRs are beautifully made bikes and Pashley make a very good job of that. But there are still certain bikes I feel that you could not put on on a production line. Ashley are not your traditional Model T Ford kind of affair. But at Bradford and Avon, so much is still done by hand. Uh, they can't change that. And they don't appear as though they are. They're not moving into one big factory. There still seems to be two distinct ways of building the bikes and two distinct ranges of bikes at the moment, which I like. But nothing wrong with getting together. Two heads are better than one, aren't they? So let's hope things are going to be good. Tony Hadland hopes that the merger will lead to a more affordable range of molten bicycles. The price differential between the 1960s ones and the commonplace bikes of, of similar spec, if you took spec for spec, uh, you'd only have an uplift of about 25%. So for 25%, you were getting uh, a bicycle which had certain advantages over the conventional, and that, that seemed to work well. When the bike came out again, the new version came out in the 1980s, it was pitched very much against the price of, I remember the particular model, it was a Claude Butler Cape Wrath, I think, that was the sort of benchmark. 
and it was almost the same price then. Uh, but it, it was found that because of the short production runs and that sort of thing and the limited numbers, that, that they couldn't keep it down to that sort of price level. So it, it is a more expensive bike than um, than some comparable ones. But I think the, the, the reason for the pricing being as it is is really to do with the numbers going through. Yeah. And the F-frame is, is capable of being produced uh, relatively inexpensively. Uh, of course, with the, the ones that come over here, they, they've been imported from Japan, so that obviously puts a, a mark up on it. But um, th- that is, is quite a, a simple design. And uh, so you know, if you had the same sort of volume going through and you had robotic factories and that sort of thing, then you could obviously make things very much uh, cheaper. But Patrick Ducey sounds a note of caution against going down the road of fully automated manufacturing. From an engineering point of view, it would be possible to, to automate um, or at least to semi-automate um, the production of, of mountain bicycles using possibly robotics and, and that, um, which would obviously make it much cheaper to produce. I, I couldn't ever see a production of it being moved to, uh, to the Far East where labour is a lot cheaper. I guess that would reduce the cost quite significantly, but I think it would reduce the appeal to, to many of the current customers anyway. Um, in an era when everything is produced, uh, is mass produced and, and um, imported from the Far East, it's, it's, uh, it's quite nice to have something that's produced locally regardless of what the cost is. According to Mog of Brixton Cycles, the Molten could well be the next fad for urban hipsters in London, New York, Seattle and Tokyo. The roads are saturated with Japanese Kieran frames and old British fixed wheel bikes. Um, in fact, we had a customer come in the other day who was like, oh, I was looking to buy a fixed wheel bike and I noticed how many of are and uh, I ended up buying a Mark II Molten and he's now spent a fortune on doing it up. I did say, oh, this is going to become very trendy, you know. And he was like, oh, great. <laughs> but yeah, that whole sort of retro thing is, they're retro yet, yet space age all at the same time. And they're great for riding around town on. Uh, it's, nothing can get through traffic better than a bike with small wheels. No matter how narrow you can cut your handlebars, you still can't get through the same gap you can get through on a molten. Remember, you heard it here first on The Bike Show. I hope you've enjoyed this special feature on the Molten story. My thanks to everyone who has taken part in the making of these programmes. And for anyone who's never ridden a Molten, I'll give the last word to George Kolouris. Beg, buy or borrow a Molten for at least a day and uh, ignore the prejudice against small wheels and uh, just take it on a variety of different types of riding and you'll see that you, you, you won't want to give it up.